what we're talking about tonight is what John forecast a couple of years now. We published flyers on and so forth. The question of the economic Armageddon. You know, this is something that we've been talking about for a long, long time. Uh, and John's put a very sharp edge on it in the last couple of years. And tonight uh, we're very privileged to have him here to be able to give us an insight about what has actually happened since he first forecast this economic Armageddon. And this is in the context of an election campaign, so just that's why I wanted a preference what, we, uh, what we're doing tonight. So without any further uh, delays, I'm going to welcome John to come and address us and uh, have some fun, John. Thank you very much. All right. How's everyone going today? All right? Excellent, excellent. So I've got to say thanks to the CC for this invitation. Um, I've been called a crazy, uh, a scaremonger, um, a nutcase. People have said I need um, me medical help, literally medical help. I need to go to a mental institution. Um, and why? Because I've said that we have the biggest bubble in the country's history at the same time we've got the biggest bubble in the history of the world. Now that's a factual statistical statement that no one can deny. Uh, you look at um, household debt to GDP, 120% uh, bigger than the 1920s, bigger than the 1880s. This is not me saying it, this is the Reserve Bank. 2007 Deputy Governor on the record says uh, at that point, 2007, we have credit statistics for Australia going back 150 years uh, and at that point in 2007, it was the biggest on record. Uh, well, in, in the 11 year, or in the 12 years now since 2007, the amount of debt in the economy concentrated in households has, has astronomically grown since 2007. So, uh, and then uh, and on the global front, global debt is uh, about uh, 80 trillion uh, more than, than 2007. So, 244 trillion dollars global debt uh, of the third quarter of last year, 318% of global GDP, uh, never before done in human history. Uh, the global picture, why is that? Because of zero interest rates, quantitative easing, very lax standards with banks, uh, but also the massive uh, uh, fiscal expansion that happened around the world. Um, so uh, Rob and I went and saw a guy, to, uh, two people today, two economists, Peter Brain and Ian Manning, who have talked about a lot about these sort of crises. These guys have a track record of predicting a lot of uh, crises from the GFC to the Asian financial crisis to the 1991 recession. And I have to say, I'm probably even more scared this afternoon after talking to these guys for two hours uh, with Robbie compared to where I was earlier, earlier today. Because we, we really went through chapter and verse about how this crisis is going to play out um, and what are the options left for the government. And basically, the options for the government, uh, they don't have much left. Uh, and the frustrating thing for me is, so I was concerned about the level of debt after the GFC, going in uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, when I was a public servant in Canberra. No one was really talking about it. And then in 2012-13, I became an advisor to Senator Arthur Sinodinos, who's a Liberal Senator, who's still in the Senate. Uh, and privately, we had several conversations. So he's an economist, I'm an economist. We had several conversations about this, and yet 
nothing really got done, nothing really was discussed in terms of private sector debt. The conversation was always about government debt um, and how Labor was running up uh, public debt after the GFC. But the, but the private sector, the things that, that, that are done by the banks, basically, and the Reserve Bank and APRA and all these uh, characters, uh, they didn't want to talk about it publicly. And even with my former employer, he really didn't want to sort of do anything of a significant nature. So by 2016, uh, I got, you know, I, I was basically at my limit. I said, well, I can't, knowing that something's wrong, knowing that I've got uh, a wife, I've got a kid, I've got two kids now, uh, thinking about their future, I've got to do something so that uh, I can help my country, I can help my fellow citizens, I can help my own family and help my own kids. So this is where I started writing a, I wrote my first column for the Daily Telegraph in May of 2016 <coughs> about household debt. This could be sort of, you know, a massive bomb, could be catastrophic for the middle class. Uh, that got some attention. Uh, so because before then, uh, it's interesting if you, if you track the Australian media in 2016, The Guardian had a piece about household debt in, in, in January of 2016. And all the other press in the country talked about public sector debt, government debt, and, and you know, it's an issue, but it's not as big of an issue as household sector, uh, the household sector debt, and, and the foreign debt, and the banks. So uh, I would come up with this big article, and then all of a sudden, a number of these media organisations started to talk about household debt, including the Oz. Uh, Adam Crichton, a few weeks later, started talking about this, and a few others, because I read my piece, and it started to get people thinking uh, and then I came out with a few more pieces later in 2016 uh, through the telly uh, and I have to give some uh, props to Joe Hildebrand who's now with Channel 10 but he was the opinion editor at the telly and he gave me the opportunity to put some uh, controversial economic and uh, opinions out. I mean I wrote some other stuff for them as well uh, but, but he was very supportive of allowing me to write for the Telegraph and put some stuff out. Uh, early 2017 Hildebrand shifted from the telly to news.com um, and basically said, uh, you know, I know that you think a crisis is coming, so can you give me five signs that uh, this crisis is coming? I said, I can do you better than five, I'll give you seven. So this is where this economic Armageddon title comes from. The first piece we did for news.com in early 2017, um, uh, the signs that economic Armageddon is coming, um, and that that's, was launched about February 2017, and, and basically it's now taken on of, uh, on of its own journey. We did like another piece in 2017. Uh, last year, I did four major pieces for news.com from, we did one in February around um, 10, like it, it was an update, 10 signs economic Armageddon. So 2017, we did seven signs, and then I did like an update in early uh, last year about 10 signs that this global crisis is coming in one form or another. Um, uh, then we published an article about the 10 myths. And where did the 10 myths, so this was 10 myths about uh, things that people believe that, that uh, that, that, are, that are really false about economics. Now, where did I get this from? The family barbecue. I go to the family barbecue, and you know, uh, I got you know, you know, relatives and in-laws who are heavily in debt, and you know, you you, under, you ask them questions. Well, why have you got this debt? Are you concerned about the economy? Um, what do you think may play out? Um, and there's a whole host of assumptions that the Australian people have uh, about the economy. Um, that 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 are, you know that are false um, that that have allowed them to believe that we are immune from a crisis um, and, and a lot of these things that I heard uh, at Easter last year I thought well th those these you know th these myths that people believe isn't that great for an article so that's how I that's how I actually came up with this ten myths article last year from from a family barbecue at Easter 
Uh, and then we went on to uh, write about uh, the, the six scenarios of economic Armageddon. So, so this was, because uh, uh, this crisis may come in uh, different forms. So I said I wanted to, you know, uh, I didn't want to be labelled with one uh, definition of this crisis. So we came out with a six scenario piece. Uh, and, then, uh, and then they said, well, write us a uh, preparation plan. So we published that uh, also last year. And actually, I was here with the CEC last year. Uh, I remember being with Jeremy on the night it was published. Uh, and this was the 10 steps of how to prepare for the crisis. So, so that's sort of the genesis of, of, of some of the stuff I've done. You know, we started a show with uh, Martin North, who lives uh, up in Wollongong with me. Uh, and we did about 35 episodes last year, and we did about 10 also this year and uh, we, we've uh, galvanized a bit of a, an audience across the country of about 10,000 any sometimes 10,000 sometimes 30 40,000 people come to watch our shows about economics and banking and you know and, and about this Armageddon that's coming and uh, you know uh, I, I've uh, Robbie and I and a few others have engaged in so, a social media war uh, with, with some of the establishment and calling out the the lies and the BS uh, that's happened and that's how I got recently on the Peter Switzer uh, show, on the Money Talk Show, we had this uh, sort of debate, uh, and, and my opponent on that night sent me a, a long email today um, calling me a national embarrassment for my performance in that debate. Um, so, uh, it, 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 you know, so, so it is interesting about this debate because what people don't realize is it was a setup. So, my opponent works for the establishment, the AFR, as a contributing editor. Uh, he has a $2 billion bond fund where he bets on uh, whether people can pay their mortgage and residential mortgage-backed securities. Um, uh, he, 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 he has investments in hybrid securities as well. So, so, so that's what he does. Now, the host, uh, Peter Switzer, he's a media commentator, uh, but he does a whole bunch of other stuff, like he's got a finance company. He, uh, he's, a, he's a financial planner. Uh, he, has, he has an investment fund and he invests uh, invest the money. But he's a mortgage broker. Um, that, that's a key part of his business. So every week he talks up the economy, everything's fine. Uh, and, and I started to call him out on social media and saying, hey, you've got a big conflict of interest. Um, you sell debt. Debt's too high. Um, and he didn't like my direct attacks on Twitter. And I challenged him to a debate. Well, he goes, well, come on my show. I said, oh, fine, I'll debate whoever you want. So we did that. And my opponent at the end of the debate says, well, he won. And the next morning, the, well, actually, once I finished the debate, social media, because I had some um, organized Twitter accounts to roll out at 8 o'clock as soon as the debate finished to say, I lost and I lost badly. So this was orchestrated propaganda. And then uh, the next morning, Peter Switzer on his finance company website publishes an editorial to say, uh, my opponent won the debate. Now, I never said I won or lost the debate. All I said was that, look at the response on social media. Twitter gave me the debate by 30 40%. And if you look on YouTube, uh, 95,000 views, roughly, uh, about seven, 800 comments. And I would say 90% of the people who watched the show and provided the comments said, I won the debate. And why? Because the central proposition of too much debt in the economy, I think the middle class have come to the realization that this is a problem and, it could, and that it is a bubble. Um, and this debt is not serviceable because this was the, one of the key points in the debate. Is debt serviceable or not? Um, and, I, and I think that the work of the CEC has been very important um, on this particular aspect because what the Royal Commission exposed in banking was systemic mortgage fraud. Um, uh, and basically, people got loans that they shouldn't have been given 
but, but more importantly, people have made uh, uh, spending commitments when things are good. So, so when, when, if you want to understand why this crisis is going to happen domestically is people have made, people had a good job, people had a good circumstance in their family household and they made certain spending commitments like about paying a mortgage or sending their kids to school or buying a fancy car or whatever the case may be. And, and when, those, when their economic circumstances start to um, deteriorate, they can't make those debt, debt, debt commitments because when, when, when you're making a financial decision, so, so when I, I bought property, I, 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 paid a, you know, I had a mortgage and, and with my wife. When, when, when we did our own financial planning, we said, well, um, you know, my, my assumption was always, well, what if I lost my job? Could I pay my mortgage? What if um, my, my wife lost her job? Um, could we put food on the table? And I always did my financial planning from what, the worst case scenario. If things got bad, could we survive? But everyone did the opposite. Everyone said, well, things are good today. I can afford this today. I will make commitments today. And, and, we, we, you know, and no one has really forecasted, well, if things get bad, can I still pay this debt? So, so that's the ultimate reason why this debt is unserviceable because of what happens, you know, both in terms of how the banks gave out the mortgages, but also because of how, um, uh, how people in a bubble psychologically make commitments that in normal times they should never have been able to, that they should never have been able to make. Um, so, 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 so that's obviously some of the genesis. Um, you know, part of, the, part of the, some of the work that I've been doing is we're trying, and obviously this is where Robbie and, and Wilson Sy has also been trying, is to talk to parliamentarians about this. Um, uh, what I would say is uh, most of parliament is stupid. Most of parliament is, is and I'm, I'm kidding, I mean the economic literacy of parliament is, is very low. Uh, a lot of people don't understand this stuff. Uh, I would say that the, the staff of the CEC um, have, a, have a much more in-depth knowledge about economics and banking compared to the average parliamentarian. Uh, the, the parliamentarian will rely on mainstream sources of information, um, a lot of vested interest from the media to, 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 to banks, international economic institutions as well, and a lot of these people have the inability to think through these issues uh, you know, to, to, to a in-depth level. But, but the thing is, is that when I have engaged with some of the smart politicians, and there are a few smart ones, uh, you know, you get disappointing responses. So let me give you an example. I won't give the name out tonight, but 2017, I had a text exchange with an, with an Australian senator, uh, and I said to that senator, when the economy blows up, who will be held accountable for the crisis? Who will be held accountable for the carnage of the middle class? And the senator came back and said, no one. Um, yes, that's what an Australian senator said to me in a text message that the establishment will get away with the causing of the bubble and the blowing up of the bubble. So uh, this is the mentality of the Reserve Bank, of APRA, of the press, of, of, uh, of Treasury, of Parliament. Um, you know, if people suffer economically, um, we will not be held accountable. Now, remember, what happened in the GFC um, wasn't us. It was the Americans, it was the Irish, it was whoever. Uh, but we, 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 we were doing an all right job. But it just so happened, no one saw it. Uh, and obviously, you know, and this was obviously the, the Rod Gillard narrative, who saw the GFC? We didn't see the GFC, therefore we can't be held accountable. 
Um, so now, uh, obviously, the environment today is a little bit different. I mean, we have a, you know the CC is still sort of banging the drum, and, and obviously, you know, Robbie has informed me about the the work that CC was doing before the GFC. But we have a few different voices. So I'm out there writing a lot of stuff. Uh, Martin North, uh, who who does uh, digital finance analytics. He's been saying a lot of stuff, uh, and it was on 60 Minutes a few times, etc. Uh, there are a few additional voices who are who are trying to voice concerns about this. Uh, but what was I told last year by Australian parliamentarian? Uh, the this is this is in his office uh, about December last year. The establishment in this country knows that they have screwed everything up, and they have a deliberate strategy of plausible deniability. What does that mean? They are going. They hope they are going to delay this crisis until something blows up again, and their and their friends in the in the media will will say, well, it wasn't us. It was the Chinese. It was the Americans. It was the Italians. It was whoever. So this this was told to me in Parliament last December that they know they screwed it up uh, and they don't want to have have an accountability error. So they're going to try to squib it, uh, and that's how they're going to do it. Now, when I got told this, I said, but mate, I'm here. Like, as in me. Like, I've got a website. I've been doing videos. Uh, a lot of people around the country know who I am. I'm going to keep talking. Do you honestly think that with this material of evidence or, or this body of evidence I've been able to develop over the last few years that you can honestly say we didn't see it coming? Um, and, and do you think I will allow the establishment to continue to, to deny the problem, but also to deny um, that they caused it and that the suffering of the Australian middle class didn't have to be as bad as what it will be, um, you know, that's not going to happen because I'm here and I'm willing to say things uh, and be controversial, um, um, you know, e even if uh, certain people push back. Well, um, you know, that, that's sort of where we left the conversation. But, but, but let it be known tonight that the establishment seek to avoid accountability for the bubble, and this is the biggest bubble on record, they seek to um, delay the crisis until something overseas blows up. Um, and then with their friends in the media, they seek to shift the blame to uh, that overseas country and say it wasn't us. Now, uh, part of the reason why the narrative and the propaganda is falling apart is, is that we are... Um, we, we, the, the economy is starting to fall apart now. Now, for 200 years, when the Australian, when, when we've had an economic crisis in Australia, that crisis has always started from overseas. So the GFC happened in New York, the Asian financial crisis happened in Thailand, uh, the 91 recession happened out of the US and, and out of the UK, um, uh, the Great Depression happened with the stock market crashing in 29 in New York, but also uh, one of the key banks um, in, in Vienna going belly up, which, which was part owned by the Rothschilds, and that caused the depression in Europe. Um, the 1892 depression was caused by Barings Bank going almost belly up in 1890 in London, and that caused credit rationing uh, that, that triggered the depression, particularly here in Melbourne. But also stagflation in the 1970s, where this was OPEC um, and, and what was happening in the oil market. So now, what I can reveal now, Robbie's sp spoken about this on one of the CSC shows. Now, Martin North and I did a show recently in which we revealed secret government meetings. Now, a source here in Melbourne, I can reveal, 
called me up several weeks ago and said that uh, in the last few months, um, Treasury officials have been having covert meetings in Europe asking Europeans how to deal with bad banks, bad toxic mortgages, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, property, property that property uh, in terms of development sites that, that have failed. Um, how do you recapitalize banks? So, uh, so, so obviously, you know, uh, the 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 conspiracy around bail-in, uh, I believe, to be real. They passed the legislation. Um, you know, the CEC has been at the forefront of of that effort. Um, I was able to find out certain aspects that uh, about the legislation. About, about certain loopholes, and I've done some uh, some videos about the loopholes with Martin North, um, and, and you know on that point, um, the the um, you know the Greens did not read the legislation properly uh, because because they said they thought they did, and I said well uh, because because bail-in requires an instrument to say you can bail it in, so it has to be explicit. So no matter the capital instrument. Um, if, if it's, you know, it must say explicitly, you can bail this in. Now, deposit accounts does not say that at the moment. But I said, I said to the Greens, do you read the contracts of deposits? And they said, they, you know, we did not. Um, they read the legislation, but they didn't read what the banks issued to the, to the customers. And I said, did you know that the banks can change their contracts at any second without any forewarning to their customers? No, we did not know that. Well, if you, if the banks change the deposit, the terms and conditions of deposit contracts, and, and and then say and then and then say in the in the in the T's and C's, we we can bail in your retail deposit. Guess what? That's compliant with the legislation. So I've said that. Martin North agrees. Uh, you know, uh, Bob Barr, who does some legal work here for the CC, has looked at our arguments and you know has an expressed a legal opinion that our analysis is correct. And even though that the IMF um, from, but also in terms of APRA, the RBA, Treasury, Parliament says that bail-in um, is not possible, we think it is possible. Now, the question is, will they do it or not? Who knows? But the, the mentality of Treasury seeking this counsel from the Europeans is they think that what's happened for 200 years will happen again, that a global shock will happen and, and we're going to be having a major economic crisis here in the next couple of years. And how do, how do we... As Treasury, well, how does Treasury and how does the future government, which it will likely be the shortened government, how does they deal with this sort of crisis? So this is why they were having secret covert meetings in Europe. How did I find out? Because one of the participants in these meetings leaked it to a relative here in Australia, and that relative was watching my show and called me up and said, "You better know what your government is up to." So, so, so these meetings have been taking place. Um, um, uh, and, and you know, as soon as I heard about it, I did call a member of parliament who are, who's sympathetic to my cause, uh, and he he was uh, he wasn't well. He, he was a little bit surprised that that these things were happening, but but on the other hand, he sort of said, well, um, you know, it's better to prepare than not prepare. I said, sure, let's prepare. But these guys caused the caused the problem in the first place um, um, in, in terms of cause, causing this bubble. So, treasury is expecting a crisis. This is why they're having secret meetings. Now I can reveal tonight that, um, that the Labor Party also believe a crisis is coming after the election because they have been telling people in the private sector they believe a crisis is coming, but they believe the crisis, like the Treasury, is coming from overseas. 
just like with any other crisis. Now, um, I published a piece last month with Martin North and, and an Irish expert, Eddie Hobbs, uh, because everyone's waiting for the shock, um, but our housing market is falling down. So Melbourne's down about 10.3%, Sydney's down 14%, uh, Perth's already down 18%, Northern Territory's down 20%. So the bubble is starting to come apart in this country. Um, and, and, and to be honest, it's happening too soon for the establishment because they were, they were hoping that they could hold this together so that they could wait for this international shock to come and they could um, avoid the responsibility. But the Royal Commission has resulted in a collapse of credit. So what drives house prices? It's pumping new debt into the system. Well, how were they pumping the debt into the system? Systematic fraud. And Denise Bradley, who's spoken to the CC, I've spent many hours with her, getting her views about the scale of the fraud. And you know, some of the Irish people have read Denise's work and said that if half of the things that Denise says in her submission to the Royal Commission is true, it is the scale of the fraud in the Australian banks was far worse than whatever than, than what the Irish were up to. So how do they get people into this debt? It was through fraud because it was, there was no compliance with the responsible lending laws. So since the Royal Commission, with, with the threat of class actions and the threat of jail time, the banks are scared uh, and this is what's driving credit growth to collapse. Now, annualised credit growth to housing, 4.2% uh, as of last month. Uh, the lowest on record. Uh, we'll have new data out this Friday by the Reserve Bank. So we'll, so we'll be keen to see whether, uh, whether that continues. Uh, so, so I expect that credit growth to housing will continue to fall. And what that means is you're going to see further falls in, um, in property prices. So now, with, with, with people uh, having a lack of ability to borrow, uh, now we, we have, now going back 20 years, you had about six and three quarter percent of the workforce in construction. Well, as of February last year, it was at nine and a half percent. Now, that increase of, of the proportion of the workforce in construction, that's about 300,000 jobs. So that's what happens in the bubble. More people go in, into those areas of employment where the bubble is at. Um, and, and you see this in construction, you see this in retail, you see this in finance, you see this um, in, in hospitality. Because what is the bubble? It is consumption, it is borrowing, um, it is property. So, um, so we are starting to see, uh, a sl you know, so, so, so there is this argument, and we tested, Robin and I tested this out with, the, with, our, um, uh, with some of the uh, people we spoke to this afternoon, is what if waiting for the shock, what if Australia is the shock? Now, economically, among economists, this is actually a radical idea, because in 200 years, we've never been the cause of a global crisis, but, but, but I, could, I can see a thesis for this. So we wrote an article last week, uh, sorry, last month for news.com, um, we, could, we, we, put it, we put the thesis forward to, our, uh, to the people we spoke to uh, today uh, and they said we've never thought about it but it makes sense that we could, what we're seeing today in Melbourne and, and so now uh, because, because we're here in Melbourne today I can, I can sort of say that um, so the run up in prices in Melbourne was faster than the run up in prices in Sydney and so far prices are falling, so prices started falling uh, later in Melbourne compared to Sydney, but they're falling faster and it's causing more problems. And, and there's more anecdotal evidence that economic conditions here in Melbourne are worse than what's, what it is in Sydney. So what, we're, so what we're seeing in the market today, the, the establishment says this is going to stabilise, this is a soft landing. Um, uh, Eddie Hobbs, the Irish expert who predicted the Irish housing crisis, doesn't believe that to be the case. He thinks that this is going to be a, a, a collapse 
because our Ireland collapsed before the GFC. So Ireland started collapsing in 2007, uh, two, yeah, 2007, and then Lehman Brothers basically smashed the Irish banks like, in terms of a second wave crash. But, but you, we don't need a global shock for the Australian economy to, to, to fall. On a per capita basis, we're already in recession. Um, and if you looked at inflation today, inflation came out at 0%. So we could easily go into recession later this year or, 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 or early next year. And, 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 and so we could uh, see this property market um, sort of unravel. Now, if, if, if unemployment goes up, if people can't pay their debts, if it starts to spread to the banks, um, then, then, then we are in all sorts of trouble. Uh, it could spread right around the world. Um, so, so again, we don't need the world to blow us up. We could blow up the world. Um, and, 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 and there's all sorts of problems um, in terms of, uh, in, 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 like in terms of what, what, what ha you know, the stability of the banks. So uh, now, uh, so, so on, on the issue of the, of the banks, there, there, there's probably a few things to, um, uh, you know, th th there's probably a few things to say. So uh, now, uh, we, we, we have a housing bubble, but we also have a foreign debt bubble. So gross foreign debt is about 2.2 trillion, and about a, a trillion of that is, has been lent to households through, through the banking system. So um, if, if we default on our debt, who are we defaulting to? We're defaulting to our foreign creditors. Um, so, so, so that's who we owe the money to. So, so this, is the one, this is the biggest myth of the last 25 years. Everyone thinks that how we have been living in this country is normal. It's not. We have been borrowing money from, from foreigners for, for 25 years. Um, and this, it's never, 25 years of economic life in this country has never been sustainable because we've just run up debt year after year after year after year, thinking that you know, the car, the mortgage, the holiday, the, the, you know, the fancy school, the fancy whatever is normal economic life. It's not. Um, and, and people don't actually fully comprehend what normal economic life is. And, and, and that's going to be part of why this crisis, you know, uh, why it's going to be bad. So, so basically you have, so if the banks get in trouble because people can't pay their mortgages, you're going to have basically three options. One is you, you let the banks fail. Now, if, that, if you have that, we will have a depression. The biggest since 1788, it will be bigger than 1892. Why? Because the debt and the debt bubble is bigger. So that's one option. Another option is bail-in uh, because it's about recapitalizing the banks. Um, so, so, the, so, because, because what, so the question is why do, why do the banks potentially need bail-in? Because if they're running out of money, well, the foreign creditors, the, the guys over in Wall Street, they want their money. So the banks need to come up with fresh funds so they can actually pay their foreign creditors on the international credit market. So one way is to flog depositors. So, so this is why bail-in is important. Now, now the, third the third option is, is nationalisation. So this is what the Irish did. This is what the, um, you know, what, what the British did, what the Americans did. So, um, you know, every, so, 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 so yeah, so now, the establishment says, well, we, 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 can, we can save the banks. We can save the household sector uh, by doing a whole range of policy options, you know, lowering interest rates, quantitative easing, uh, fiscal policy, nationalisation. Um, you know, we, we, they did it 10 years ago. We can do it again. Um, and, and, and basically, you know, she'll be right. So, so, so this is what you hear. So if you listen, even on budget night, 
my former employer, Ernst & Young, their chief economist, was on ABC and she said, uh, no problems, we can, do we can do quantitative easing. Now, what is quantitative easing? Uh, it is the government printing money to buy government bonds. Um, now, why do you do that? It's because, in reality, a, 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 you know, if the government has to print to buy bonds, it's because the private sector doesn't want to buy those bonds. Um, and, 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 and because, because basically there's not enough demand because I don't think that the, the, the bonds at those prices are, are basically w worth the product. So, so when you run out of investors to buy the bonds, that's why you do quantitative easing. Now, Bernanke in front of Congress, what he said, well, we, we're going to do this only on, on a temporary measure and we can reverse it within 15 minutes. So, so years later, they, they took the balance sheet of the US Federal Reserve up to four and a half trillion. Uh, and, and now they've scaled it back, you know, about, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, you know, half a trillion dollars. And now they say, well, we can't do it anymore. Otherwise, we're going to blow up our own economy. So, so once you start quantitative easing, you can never reverse it. I mean, it's what, it's, it's, it's what Keating said in 86. It's a banana republic. I mean, I mean uh, and, and ultimately, um, it, it, it leads to issues with the currency. So, so von Mises, 1912, when you've got a bubble, you've got two options. You either the bubble pops or you do everything to keep the bubble intact, but you, it results in the currency basically turning to custard. And everything that we're hearing um, from the establishment is, well, we're going to do everything and anything to save the banks and to stop the housing market and the banks from crashing. Because they've told me a depression um, is completely unfathomable. Now, the reality is, is that by pursuing this, it will lead to major problems with the Australian dollar. Uh, it will lead to major problems in our ability to service our foreign debt. Um, and, and Robbie had the fortune of listening to two expert economists this afternoon who has, have written a book about this subject called Credit Code Red. And they went in chapter and verse about what happens when you try to print your way out of a problem. Um, you know, the currency collapses, um, you know, um, hyperinflation, um, you know, what happened to Germany in 1923, I mean, like, it, 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 it is, you know, it is quite bad. So, um, where, you know, so, 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 so this is obviously one of the big concerns I have in terms of future policy. Uh, they, you know, it is monetary madness. They're going to, all of the things that cause this problem with the low interest rates, the lax lending standards, um, you know, the, the, all the reckless spending, well, rather than actually trying to fix these things, they're actually going to compound them. Uh, and this is what the Americans and the Europeans and the Japanese uh, have done in the last 10 years. And it looks like that our government <coughs> is, is, is trying to do the same. Uh, but, 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 but that obviously has a, a whole host of, um, uh, you know, a, a, whole ho a whole host of consequences. So, you know, when it comes to the election, let, let me just uh, sort of divert for a second. So when it comes to the election, so in this economic context, the election basically is irrelevant in the sense that we have a bubble and the bubble is going to uh, come to a head no matter who's the prime minister. So, so you know, uh, so th there really isn't any, any genuine option on the ballot between the major parties. Now, uh, now the reality is, is that both parties will, will not openly talk about this. Um, uh, you know, now, Labor has talked about global shocks very, very briefly, but they haven't sort of embraced this subject and tried to explain to the public what's really going on. 
Um, uh, and, and this is why a, a whole host of the population is completely unprepared um, for, 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 for what I expect, yeah, um, you know, it, for what I expect is going to come over, over the next little while. Um, but, you know, there potentially is a case to make that uh, Labor and, and, you know, I mean, I'm no longer a member of the Liberal Party, but I used to be in the Liberal Party, so you could say I'm slightly biased. But, but there, is, there is a set of policies that I think Labor is going to pursue that, that may make the crisis happen quicker in Australia and may actually exacerbate the problem. So in terms of their, some of their tax policies, um, industrial relations, regulation, and in terms of energy, uh, I mean, we, we basically need, um, we, you know, we need to do things that's actually going to help business to grow um, and, and to keep people in jobs. And, and when you pursue policies that are going to raise the cost of energy, when it raises the cost of doing business, when it makes it hard to employ people and keep people in work, and when you when you when, when you're dramatically increasing taxes that are going to make it uh, that are create disincentive to invest, um, uh, they, these sort of policies are actually bad for 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 the economy. Uh, and, and also, you know. One of, the, one of the issues around um, you know, what's holding up the Australian dollar and our ability to, to service foreign debt is confidence. So, so our foreign creditors who, um, who, um, who have lent us $2.2 trillion, they still think we can pay it. Now, we can't pay it. I mean, the thing is, look, there is no, we have no plan to pay $2.2 trillion of gross foreign debt. Um, there is no appetite among the Australian people to pay $2.2 trillion worth of debt. Um, and, and if I was a foreign creditor of Australia, like, and if I lent some money to Australia, I would not be, at this point, particularly confident that the Australians could meet their foreign debt obligations. But, um, but at the same time, I think Shorten is, is uh, not smart enough to be Prime Minister. Let me be as open about that as possible. Um, I don't think his policies are the right set of policies to, to manage the economy going forward. Um, and I think he will make the economy worse in the short term and, and he may drive confidence down in our economy uh, because of his incompetence and, and this again could hasten the, could, it could hasten the crisis. So, so, so the establishment in seeking this strategy of plausible deniability, uh, you know, it may not happen because we could be the shock that blows up the world. So, uh, but, but, but in terms of moving forward, uh, you know, the key point to take away from tonight is the, the establishment are going to pursue what I would call monetary madness. Uh, you know, they've said they're going to go to, they will, they, are, they will go to 0% interest rates if they need to. If you look at social media today, they've already said, you know, start cutting rates, quarter percent, half a percent. Um, because, and a lot of these people associated with the banks, the vested interest, they say, we need to prop up this market, keep on cutting rates. But, you know, we're at one and a half. Oh, you know, we don't have a lot of firepower left. Now, um, so, so we, you know, will we see 0% interest rates? I think we will. We will see quantitative easing. Well, the Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank in December said, if we need to do QE, we will do QE. But once you start it, guess what? You'll never be able to reverse it, um, no matter what the establishment says. Uh, will we see negative interest rates? Well, around the world, we're starting to see negative interest rates uh, in some countries. Uh, Japan is one. I mean, the, the, the one that has the uh, deepest negative interest rates is Switzerland at negative three-quarter of a percent. Now, when you have a crisis, uh, this is the International Monetary Fund. They've said you need to cut rates anywhere between three to six percent to 
to have any chance of stabilizing the economy. Well, we're at one and a half. So if we have a crisis, if we go in a recession, or if the world blows up and we need to stabilize our economy. So when Lehman Brothers went under, we were at seven and a quarter percent interest rates. We lowered it to three. So we lowered it by four and a quarter percent. Well, we don't have that room anymore. So what have the IMF done in the last uh, sort of nine months? They put out a, a, an academic paper and they put out a blog. And they said, well, we need to have major negative interest rates. Negative three, negative four percent. Um, in the, in, the, in the history of, of, of economics, this has never been done before. So, um, but they think, now, now they wrote this paper and they said, well, you know, uh, we think we can make this work, but when you actually read their analysis about the impacts of their prescription, they've said, because there is no historical evidence of this working, we're not exactly sure in these aspects whether it's gonna work or not. <laughs> but, 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 but overall, so yeah, so it, it, the IMF is like the mad scientist and saying, I've got this crazy idea, I think it's going to work. I'll admit that I'm not a little bit sure, but let's just try it anyway. <laughs> I mean, I mean th th this is where this is going and, and the Treasury and the RBA um, and, and the ALP and the coalition are tied into the BIS, are tied into the IMF. So, so you know, I've, been, I've written several articles about this war on cash, the, the, the process to drive physical cash out of the economy. This is all, you know, this, they said it's all about the black economy. It is not, it is all about negative interest rates. So if you hold a $50 note in your hand, what interest rate do you pay on that note? Zero, because you don't, you're not receiving any interest from anyone and you're not paying any interest. Well, this is the problem they had with negative interest rates because if, you, if they start charging negative interest rates, people start hoarding cash because the interest rate on cash is actually higher than a negative interest rate. So this whole thing about the war on cash, this is about getting around this problem. So, but in certain countries like in India, massive political backlash against taking cash out of the economy. So they said, well, we can do a bit of it, uh, but, but we can't do too much of it. Now, the big fight that I think the CC should be fighting on after the election is, if you looked at my IFO, which is the Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook. So in last year's budget, the coalition government said that they're going to introduce a legal ban to make it illegal to engage in a cash transaction above $10,000. Now, uh, that legislation, so when the when MAIFO was released before Christmas, they said that the commencement of this uh, measure will start 1 January 2020. Now, parliament, the legislation hasn't been introduced, so the um, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry is against this measure because some of their members who are cash businesses basically don't th think there's no economic rationale for it. But I suspect that a, a Shorten government or a Morrison government will pursue this ban. And I, I think this is, uh, this is bad news. It's, it's bad for economic liberty. It's bad for certain uh, economies. If I want to do business with Craig, um, and you know, if he has a car, I want to buy the car, it goes, it's worth $15,000. If I have 15000 in cash, it should not be the business of the government to say, I can't give 15000 in cash to Craig for, for an for a asset that he's willing to give me. But, but, but this is one of the major fights after the election to stop this war on cash because this is all about facilitating the IMF agenda around negative interest rates. So. Um, so so, so, so that, that's one of the big things that, that, that's happening. The, this, the, these IMF papers introduced a couple of other mechanisms that they think may be worthwhile to pursue 
um, um, to, to make negative interest rates work. Now, these other ideas haven't been necessarily implemented as of yet in Australia, but we need to be very careful. I mean, there are establishment economists, and he's on the record, Stephen Kukulos, has already been calling for negative a quarter, negative half a percent interest rate. So some of these Australian voices have already expressed this. <coughs> now, I can reveal that an Australian, uh, like a, a, a journalist in the Canberra Press Gallery, who's an economic writer, uh, told me last year that in confidential conversations with the Treasury, the, the Australian Treasury told this journalist that the Treasury has looked at negative interest rates. The Treasury does believe that they can take Australia to negative a half percent, um, uh, and that it will be uh, that there will be no problems with it. But, but apparently, beyond negative half a percent, there is a problem with it now. I don't, I, like a <laughs> so, 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 so to be honest, um, I, I, so I haven't seen this analysis. I don't know why the Treasury has, has told the press confidentially we can go to negative half, but beyond negative half there, there's a problem. Um, but, but, but if anyone thinks that negative interest rates won't come here, um, uh, well, the Reserve Bank and Treasury will, will pursue it uh, with the banks as well. So. You know, zero percent negative interest rates, quantitative easing, um, you know, uh, uh, controls around cash, um, uh, but also they've said this thing about the expansion of, of the Commonwealth balance sheet. Well, what does this mean? No surpluses. It means more and more public sector debt because if you've got a bubble in, in the private sector and you don't want it to pop, that bubble has to be transferred somewhere so it's more manageable. Well, what do they want to do? They want to shift private sector debt onto the government balance sheet to keep the bubble going. But what does that mean? It means you're indebting the government um, uh, and, 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 and you're going to saddle my kids with, with billions and billions of dollars um, so, so that they can kick the can down the road. Now, uh, so it's not just an issue of intergenerational equity. It's also an issue of, well, if the federal balance sheet you know, continues to, to go up, um, you know, what, what is this going to do to confidence in terms of the dollar? Um, because to, to service this, if, if they shift all of this debt to the government balance sheet, how are they going to service it? You're not going to get enough investors to buy these bonds. It's quantitative easing. How do you do quantitative easing? You've got to print money. The more and more you print, um, we're not, so, the U, the United, so we're not a major economy. So the, the Americans, the, the Japanese, the, the Europeans, you know, th th they can do this QE um, a and they can make it, no, it's unsustainable, but they can make it go longer compared to a country like Australia that, that's, that, that has less economic power um, and it's much easier for us uh, because cause, cause the other thing is our foreign debts are, I think, a bigger problem than some of these other economies. So, uh, you know, th these things are a recipe for disaster. It won't address these problems um, and basically, it, it, it will um, sort of uh, cause, you know, a collapse in the dollar, uh, and a collapse in the dollar means runaway inflation. Um, so, 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 so people go, well, if the dollar crashes, what does that mean? So, practical example. So, w what's a liter of petrol here in here in Coburg? Dollar thirty. Dollar forty. So, imagine going to the petrol station, paying two dollars fifty, three dollars a liter. So, so, so I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, that's what happens when a dollar crashes. Yeah, I mean, I mean um, prices go up, uh, interest rates go up, um, and, and, and it's just, you know, it is bad news. And if anyone hasn't read, read about 
runaway inflation episodes, uh, what happened in Germany in 1923 with hyperinflation. I, I mean, look, I suggest that people go have a read of that because it, because it actually is quite illuminating to understand not only the economics of this, but the social impact of what happens when you lose control of your currency. So, so, so yeah, so currency crisis, balance of payments crisis, uh, you know, so we've got a bubble. We're going to have a housing crisis if housing <coughs> collapses and we default on the debt, or we're going to have an issue with the currency because we're trying to print and trying to prop up the bubble. Um, now, um, he, here's where gold is actually quite important because um, there is, there is a, a big trend across the world um, to hoard gold. Uh, uh, a lot of gold has been stored in, in, in Western Europe as well as in the United States. And now we're seeing a, a range of countries starting to request the gold back. And there's been a big issue around this whole, whole issue. But we're also seeing the Russians, the Chinese, um, uh, and a whole host of other countries buy a lot of gold. Now, last year, the central banks bought the, the most gold in 2018 since 1967. Uh, but also in terms of repatriation, I mean, we've seen we've seen the Germans, we've seen the Turks, we've seen the Austrians, the, the, the we've seen we've seen Holland, we've seen Venezuela. They've said to the, to the English and the Americans, "Give us our gold back." Now, why why are these countries, these non-Western countries, hoarding gold? Now, before 1971, uh, the the international monetary system was based on, on gold. Um, if, if every country around the world is printing all of this money and there is no, and the debt bubble gets bigger and bigger and bigger, I mean, there is a, there's, a, there's more risk, there's more systemic risk in the global international monetary system, but there's also, um, uh, there's obviously more concern about the purchasing power of, of these currencies. Now, for thousands of years, when you have, when you have a currency that's not backed by anything, it's called a fiat currency because the government says a $5 note is worth $5. So when you print more and more of this, what, what is the ultimate value of these currencies? It's zero because politicians and bureaucrats print too much of it and the currency fails. And in the history of 5,000 years of human history, you have never had a, a currency that's not been backed by gold or silver that has test, stood the test of time. They always fail. And this is where there's major concerns among non-Western powers that the US government but also Europe uh, and, and the UK and, and countries like Australia are printing too much money and we could see um, you know, so, so some major issues around, um, uh, we, we, we're also seeing some major issues around the, the, the sustainability of, of, of currency. So the RBA balance sheet, 5.24% uh, of its reserves is gold, the rest is foreign currency. Uh, but that gold's not here. So if you've seen some of my work on gold, 99.9% of, of, of Australia's official gold reserves, as in the government's gold, is in the Bank of England. Um, the 11 tonnes of that, as of last year, was leased, which is basically we, we leased the gold out to someone and they pay an interest and they promised to give us the gold back. And the 69 tonnes, well, in 20 years, we've only walked into the vault once for about three to five days. 2013, um, there's an order report. The Reserve Bank won't release the order report because it says it will damage relations with the Bank of England. Um, I, I, did a, I did a show about this uh, and we exposed the, the, the methodology of the audit. Um, 
the, 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 the English told us when we could walk in, for how long, <coughs> what could we look at, and there wasn't a genuine audit. So, so the government says the gold's there. Well, I don't, I'm not sure if the gold's there because it wasn't a proper audit. We, the English won't allow us to walk in whenever we want, um, and also they won't release the audit report. Now, as a result of some of my shows last year about gold, the Reserve Bank created a new web page because they had no information about gold on their website. So they did create a new web, new web page where they explained um, um, you know, what, 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 what this whole gold thing's about. But um, the, the governor in November at a public forum was asked about, is there any, any you know, uh, what's up with our gold? Is there any intention to bring it back? Uh, he lied on the public record. No, no one in the media will say that the Reserve Bank government lied. Categorical lie. Hey, what did he say? He said, we do regular checks about our gold. False. One check, three days tw in 20 years. That's not a regular check. So why did he lie? <laughs> Who knows? Why did he lie? Uh, but, but he said publicly, the gold's not coming back. He said, we're not going to bring it back. He's got some reasons for it. I think they're bogus, but... There's a whole host of Australians who watch these shows that I did and said, well, we want the gold back. Well, the governor has said he will not budge and he will not listen. So this is, this is why I think, uh, and I've said to privately to people, the, the governor should be sacked. Let's get a governor that's willing to bring the gold back. But There's probably no gold there left to bring Well, see, see that, that's the conspiracy, that, that the banks have, have been melting the gold down and selling it to the Chinese to suppress the gold price. Now, is that true? Is that false? Who knows? But um, we can't we can't do a genuine check of our gold. Um, so 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 you know uh, so there's some big issues there. Now on this issue of gold leasing, which is which is part of the conspiracy, we, we lease the gold out. A counterparty gets the gold, sell, sends it to Switzerland, melts it down, then s sells it off to the Chinese. That's the conspiracy. Um, uh, what did the deputy governor tell Parliament in February? Quote: When we lease the gold. The gold physically does not move. So, 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 think about if you've got an asset, and so, so, just say I've got an asset, and and I don't know, just say this cup. Just say Jeremy wants to, uh, wants to lease this cup. Well, I will physically give the cup to Jeremy, uh, and then he will pay me a fee um, as part of this contract. That's what leasing is. You lease something. Well, he and and obviously the conspiracy is when you lease it and the gold leaves the vault. It doesn't come back. That, that's the conspiracy. The deputy governor said on the record, the gold physically does not move. Now, if this is true, why can't we have the gold in Australia? Because if, the, if, if, if someone's willing to pay us an income, an leasing contract, and the gold physically does not have to move, well, why does it have to be in London? Let's just bring it to Sydney. And we, we can have our own leasing agreements here. So, so, so that's one. But here's the big thing. And this is where the parliament completely failed. They have walked in the vault once in 20 years. They were not allowed to see all the gold. The English controlled so much of what we could see and we had to give them advance notice six weeks to eight weeks in advance um, uh, before the audit happens. So we gave the English the heads up about what was going on. So with all these things, if we have only seen part of the gold in 20 years, how do they know if the gold moves or doesn't? They don't know. So why do they tell Parliament? And, when, and this is the thing, when the Reserve Bank testifies in front of Parliament, they're not under oath. So the, 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 go read Hansard.
They say the Reserve Bank is not under oath testifying before Parliament. Well, how does that make any sense? If, if you go on, exactly, if you go in front of the US Congress, you've got to testify. And if you lie to Congress, it's, it, you go to jail. So now, what do they say? They said, you don't have to testify uh, uh, under oath, but if you, if you mislead Parliament, if you mislead the committee, the committee may refer you to the House of Representatives. Well, I actually wrote to the Secretary and I said, in the history of the Australian Parliament, how many times has the Reserve Bank been referred for, 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 for providing misleading or false information? What's the answer? No. Zero. Zero. And here they said, I mean, this isn't the most misleading thing. You've walked into the vault once in 20 years, you've seen part of the gold in three days, and you say, when we lease, the gold doesn't move. I mean, you don't have to be Columbo to figure out that they, there's no they, there's no way they can tell you this. So 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 this is actually this is a bit, you know this is important because if they're going to ruin the currency, and if our foreign creditors have uh, concerns about the stability of our currency, you know, gold actually does play a role in this, um, uh, and, and 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 you know, you know, and, and you know, not to be too critical of the CEC, but you know, from, from what I can see across the political landscape, no one is going to this next election with a formal policy about gold in, in terms of the Reserve Bank. But gold will be an important component to ensure that we uh, maintain international confidence in our currency. Um, and we, you know, uh, the reserves is about 5% in gold and the gold's not here, and I think we need to bring the gold back. I think we need, to, we need to copy the Chinese, we need to copy the Russians, we need to start increasing gold, and we need to start voicing concerns about, about all of these so-called so policies, which in effect help the banks, um, uh, and help protect the, the, the bubble of the banks, but, but, but doesn't do anything to protect the, the, the currency of the Australian dollar. Because if, if the dollar goes, if the foreign debt goes, well, um, you know, the, you know that, will be, that will be Armageddon. I mean, Armageddon's coming in one form or another, but, but, that's a, but, but that is a, a, a nasty form of Armageddon that, that, that basically, um, you know, um, you know, uh, that, 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 you know that, that, that will be very bad for the middle class. Now, Can I ask a question? Sure. These foreign have they been able to get the gold back or they're hedging the right No, no, no. The thing, like, so so th th there's been some controversy around this. So the initial request, I think from memory, was 2011, 2012 with Venezuela. Now, Venezuela went to the Americans for their gold. They got their gold back. Then the Germans went for their gold. And the Germans were told, it, you can't get it, you, you, you can't, well, they said, can we look at it? No, you can't look at it. Well, we want it back. Well, we can give you part of it in seven years. So, so that's what the Americans said. Now, th once once this was told to the Germans, everyone got scared. Well, you know, if, if you know, you, you've been looking after our property. Now, um, the the Germans were never doing any proper audits of their gold, and basically, an a audit court in Germany said, no, you've got to actually do a proper audit. Um, and, and basically, there were certain people in Germany who said, no, bring the gold back. Um, and basically, they they've been able to bring that process to a head and the gold has been able to return back to Germany. But, but the question is, well, you know, uh, there's a few conspiracies around where that gold may have come from, but, but Germany's got to go back and, and same with the Turks and, and, the, and the Holland, etc. So, so yeah, so uh, I don't think that there's any need uh, or there's any reason why we, we shouldn't be able to have our gold back physically in the country, particularly because 
the Reserve Bank and Treasury and Parliament are going to pursue a set of policies after the election which are going to be bad for the Australian dollar because they don't want the housing bubble and the banks to go bust. Now, um, we are seeing some other interesting things in, in the international monetary system that, that, that around this issue of currency that are important. Uh, and I've written an article on my website uh, about this. Um, so, 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 you know, uh, because, because we're seeing a bit of geopolitics uh, involved around in, t in terms of what's happening in terms of, in terms of the US dollar. Um, so, so, you know, the Americans are printing massive amounts of money. They're getting into more and more debt. Um, s s same with the Europeans, same with the British. Um, um, and, and, but basically, you've got all these non-Western countries hoarding gold. Now, uh, you're seeing this process of what they call de-dollarization, which is about trying to reduce the, the use of the American dollar in the international monetary system. Um, so since 1944, the linchpin of the whole system has been the US dollar. Now, if the US dollar collapses, um, you know, that has massive implications for the global economy. Um, uh, so, 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 you know, and it would look like that the Russians and the Chinese and others are preparing for it. So, so what have we seen in the last couple of years on this particular subject? We've seen a whole host of countries, including particularly the Russians, they're selling all of the US treasuries and using, so the, they had all these bonds, they're selling all these bonds and now buying gold instead. Uh, we're seeing a whole range of, uh, the Chinese have, have set up a new cross-border payment system so that they can facilitate with other countries not using the US dollar. Uh, we've seen the Chinese uh, launch the uh, um, Petro Yuan. So, so they're trying to buy, because the large oil import in the world is China, and they're trying to buy the oil in non-US dollars. So, so they're trying to break the petrodollar dollar system. Um, we've seen a whole host of non-US dollar denominated commodity futures contracts that, that, that will help uh, with some of these processes. And we're also seeing extensive use of bilateral currency exchange swap arrangements. So just a good example of that, the Russians recently sold some military equipment to the Indians. Well, what's the currency of, of, that, of that contract? It's actually in rubles. So we're starting to see commercial transactions, trade deals being done in non-US dollars. Uh, and, and, and obviously this is a process to bring down the US dollar um, and, 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 and that has massive implications for the international monetary system. So, so if you listen on the internet, there's going to be a global reset in the international monetary system where well, the monetary system at the moment is based on the US dollar. So if the US dollar gets into trouble um, by, by, by the recklessness of the American policy, but by um, a, a whole host of countries saying we're not going to use your currency anymore because we think it's confetti, and we're, and we're switching towards gold, well, that, that's going to have a major um, impact on our economy and, and, and we are nowhere near prepared for that because because we're following the monetary madness of the Americans and, and basically we, we have no uh, position on gold ourselves. So, so you know, uh, the, no one is really talking openly about the risk to the dollar, the risk to the foreign debt. Uh, and, and so this is why this meeting that Robbie and I had this afternoon is very important. And, and, and that's, I think, a very important part of the conversation that we need to uh, do more research on and obviously talk to Australians across the country about uh, what, what happens when you mismanage your foreign debt and, and in terms of you mismanage your currency. So, um, you know, a, a couple of final points to, to wrap up with before we finish up. Um, you know, at some point soon, I think I'm going to do a, a, an article or a show about the economic emperor of Australia. Now, who is that? Um, in my view, it is the RBA governor. Uh, for some reason, 
he seems to be untouchable. He says stupid stuff. He does stupid stuff. There's no accountability. He goes in front of parliament. He doesn't have to testify under oath. He gets no tough questions. He, he gave a speech to the National Press Club and none of the journalists actually asked him any decent questions that would really test him. And, and I had a uh, phone call with an Australian senator last night and I said, why is the RBA governor untouchable? I mean, surely he's a public official. Surely he should be accountable for his actions. Uh, why won't anyone ask any, any, any tough questions? So, so, you know, I've had people, senators, um, former members of parliament saying no. You know, it was put to me last night that some of the journalists are a little bit intimidated by the governor because he's, he's a PhD economist and some of these uh, journalists don't have that level of qualification. So they don't want to necessarily ask a question that's going to embarrass them. But uh, no, look, uh, no, the thing is that there is certain people in the, in the system seem to be untouchable, no tough questions, no accountability. Um, um, and, 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 and this guy's just going to turn the Australian dollar into confetti and, and basically uh, no one seems to be in a process of, of how to be able to, to be able to stop him. So, um, you know, putting more uh, emphasis on the RBA, on APRA and on these individuals who are making these key decisions uh, because, you know, they're trying, to, they're trying to escape accountability and we need to ensure that accountability is, is you know, focused on them because the media is not going to hold them accountable at all. So, 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 so that's about the Economic Empire of Australia. Uh, uh, I will say, you know, uh, that we, we do have the Wicked Witch of the West. Now, who is the Wicked Witch of the West? Um, it is Senator Jane Hume. Um, so, so, so obviously, obviously, Robbie has done some stuff. You know, um, when I worked in Parliament, I never had the feeling that a certain parliamentarian was was there to protect a certain interest group. Um, now, every single time something comes up with the banks, or the Reserve Bank, or or the financial system. Jane Hume is consistently stifling those efforts and she's not being held accountable by the press. Um, so I, I've, I've worked with senators, I've met senators, I know a number of senators have uh, genuine intent, sometimes they have biases because of particular beliefs, um, but, but no one has sought to disrupt or interfere in, in Parliament's role of, in, of trying to investigate and find out what's going on. But time and again, Senator Jane Hume is up to something. I don't know what, but there's a pattern of behaviour that's, um, that, that's, uh, that, that, that's not normal. Um, and, and I don't think she's representing the interests of, of, of Victoria. That's her, that's her job. Her job is to represent the interests of the state. I don't think she's doing that. And given her history as a banker, uh, I think that her either current associations or her previous history is playing a role um, uh, in her behaviour, and I think that this is very unhealthy uh, for, for 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 Parliament. So uh, now, in terms of the the now, obviously, what is the CC's agenda being in terms of this current Parliament? So obviously, bank separation, royal commission, bail-in. Um, anything else, Robbie? National Bank. Um, now, now, you know. Uh, so, so I, now, next in the next Parliament, I do suspect that this crisis I've been talking about, it's going to come to fruition in one form or another. 
Um, so, 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 so I think some of the, and obviously Glass-Steagall, so obviously some of the policies that the, um, now, I've, I've listened to Craig on the CC show on multiple locations saying, well, we need to bring in Glass-Steagall to stop the crisis from getting worse. Well, if the crisis is getting close upon us, well, maybe we need to start continuing with some of these policies, but, but, but also take the conversation in a few different areas. So, um, so, so I would say this whole issue around uh, this strategy around plausible deniability, we, we've got to stop this. We've got to hold the people who cause this crisis accountable, particularly, so the Royal Commission addressed with the banks, but who were the real, who, who's the real Colleone? Uh, who, who, who's the real um, sort of crime boss of this whole um, bubble? It's the Reserve Bank. It is APRA, it is Treasury. The public officials that are, that are supposed to be there to protect the public interest, they have categorically failed in their role um, and they're trying to pursue this strategy of plausible deniability. And I think we need to, uh, uh, to the strongest extent that we can, because we know the mainstream press won't do this, to hold these people accountable mm. so that these guys don't get away with it. So um, corruption, uh, I, I do think there's corruption in the system um, beyond of what the Royal Commission has said. Now, obviously, Denise Braley says that in the banks, the Royal Commission didn't expose the full scale of corruption in the banks. Uh, I think there's, I think there's, I think there's corruption <laughs> in other parts of, of of the system, including the government. I mean, particularly when the governor of the Reserve Bank can say we do regular checks of our gold, and they've only walked in, one, they've only done one so-called audit in 20 years. Um, you know, I want officials that are going to tell the truth. I think I think we need to have a more concerted effort around the stability of the Australian dollar um, uh, and ensuring that these policies around zero interest rates, negative interest rate, quantitative easing and fiscal, uh, fiscal expansion don't hurt the foreign debt and don't hurt the Australian dollar. I think we need to um, uh, bring back the gold. We need to increase our gold reserves. Um, now, uh, does anyone know about gold confiscation? Yep. So part, part, part four of the Banking Act, the Governor General signs a document uh, within 30 days. If you have gold above that weight, you must hand it into the to the Reserve Bank at a price set by the Reserve Bank. Now that is the law. Now uh, I will say that on this issue of the price, I think that's unconstitutional because the Constitution requires, if there's confiscation of property, um, that that the that the Reserve Bank, oh, sorry, if the common uh, confiscates property, it must be done on just and equal terms. Well, um, if I so what's the gram? Of, what's an ounce of gold? It's about eighteen hundred bucks. I've got an ounce of gold um, in my possession. If, if the government says I'm going to give you 10 bucks for it, well, that's not just in fair terms. So I think that uh, if they try to uh, swindle the public, um, uh, you know, th they, th there's a potential high court challenge on that. But you know, I wrote a couple of articles about this gold confiscation issue. S most m current members of this parliament didn't know didn't know these laws exist, and I told one of these politicians, um, you know, who's supposedly representing economic freedom. I said, well, why don't you repeal these laws because the government to, to steal people's gold, well, that's not, not, that's not freedom. And, and this is what he told me, he goes, Parliament will never repeal the gold confiscation provisions. Why? He didn't tell me why, but he said that th these laws that are in place, they've been in place since 1959, they will never go away. So, so just like with Bailin, the government, the Commonwealth likes to set up uh, infrastructure like, you know, trigger, like you know, basically uh, the ability to steal stuff, whether it's gold or whether it's retail deposits. 
and basically they just wait for the circumstance if they need it to pull the trigger. So, so it's important to clarify this issue of bail-in so that they can't launch bail-in you know, in the middle of the night. Um, just on my question about the gold, yeah. um, you know, Australia mines over 300 tonnes of gold a year. Correct. Why don't the uh, miners decide what they want to sell it for? They mine it, they can set it. I think people should be what talking to the miners and telling them, I'm a shareholder, I don't want you selling this gold for whatever idiot price that the market says. I want you to put a higher price on it. What you know, 300 tons of gold. That that would have some control over, you know, the manipulation of the market. If the people who dug it up decided what they sure. want to sell it for. Yeah, we're talking about a slightly different issue there. I know yeah. you're talking about confiscation. Yes. But this is just another layer on it. Of course. Why absolutely. are we? allowing people to set a fake price of gold. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. So absolutely right. The gold and silver market, the, 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 they are manipulated. Are we getting the full reap of our gold on the international market? No. Uh, you know, we, we're digging this stuff out of the ground and the Chinese are buying it um, a lot. So here's the thing, you know, our government says this gold stuff is not really relevant. Uh, so, so that's why we're not buying it, but yet the Chinese are buying it. So, so the question is, what do the Chinese that we don't know? What do they know that we don't know? So why are the Chinese buying our gold and we won't keep it for ourselves? Well, if they're going to confiscate it and nominate a price, that's that's where you know I can't see that ever happening. What, 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 no, no, but, but people are just going to refuse to return it, and they're not going to leave it with the bank because they know it'll be stolen in the middle of the night. They'll bury it somewhere, <coughs> but it's not going to. What, 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 yes. So, but, but but the thing is, the law says the governor general can can order the, the, the removal of the gold at a particular price. Now, this law hasn't been fully enacted, but, but in my view, this law should not, shouldn't even be on the books. No, I didn't know it was, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, look, gold confiscation is so on the books. But a parliamentarian has said these laws will not go away. So, so, so obviously, I think um, that is a mistake. And, and, and the last priority of the, the next parliament has to be to stop this monetary madness. Now. Uh, I have no look, and, and, and perhaps this is where maybe the CC and I sort of part ways. Um, you cannot escape debt. Uh, you know, I had two politicians uh, last year. We had a conversation, and they said, "Well, uh, how do we get out of this crisis?" And I said, uh, "You know, you know, if you think that you can just wave a magic wand and, and, and wish the debt away, you can't. I mean, that's just fantasy talk. We have a debt bubble. It is the biggest in 200 years." Uh, it is going to cause a crisis in one form or another. Uh, and Robbie and I spoke to two experts this afternoon who gave us, uh, you know, different insights as to how bad this is going to get. Um, um, and and, and so, so we can't escape it. So, um, so uh, yes, so, 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 so we need to sort of now obviously, uh, you know, try, try, try to focus about where, 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 we, where we go forward. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but yeah, you know, uh, we, we need to sort of continue to talk to the public about this and, and obviously, you know, despite uh, Christopher Joy and others saying that I'm crazy, I'll continue to talk about it. But, but hopefully that gives you a bit of a, a picture of, of what I've been doing and, uh, you know, I've, uh, I'm down here, I'm giving a seminar on, on Saturday, uh, going into some more detail about some of the economics of this uh, with, with a few people in St Kilda. Uh, but, but, but yeah, like a, I, I think the work of the CEC has been great uh, in this parliament. I think the, the, this crisis is going to take a, a, you know, the crisis is likely to come in the next parliament. So, so I think, uh, you know, 
I would encourage the CEC to uh, pursue a, a whole range of new initiatives uh, that, that, that just doesn't look at prevention, but it also looks at management of the crisis because the, the voices coming out of Canberra and Sydney uh, seems like the, the, the way they'll manage this will actually make it worse. Thanks. Thank